0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com Namaste and good evening to all of you. Today we will continue, tonight we will continue We're speaking a little bit about the teachings, the primary the first teachings of the Buddha as contained in the early Buddhist tradition And uh, interpreted from the standpoint of yoga Interpreted from the standpoint of chakras, energies, levels of consciousness and fundamental principles We spoke uh, in our last meetings, I quoted for you the very first discourse Which Buddha gave to the five monks, to the five ascetics ...that had been practicing austerities at the same time with him. And out of all those, he alone realized nirvana. He alone reached enlightenment. And because he had a special connection... ...which had become a spiritual connection and even a karmic connection with those... ...he knew that they were close to their own realization and he knew that they just needed a little bit of guidance and then he spite of the fact that they were in contradiction with him in the meaning that uh, they thought that he had fallen off the path by looking at his behaviors. After that Buddha gave a speech about the path in which um, which is called in the Buddhist tradition, it's another not very long speech, it's another very clear teaching, which is called setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. There are Buddhist celebrations in the summer which celebrate exactly this discourse. Setting the wheel of Dharma in motion is a very, very beautiful metaphor because it's like when Buddha was talking, then he set the wheel of Dharma in motion. But what is the wheel of Dharma? The wheel of Dharma in early Buddhist thinking is a sort of a symbol of the universal evolution. On the wheel of Dharma, you have souls which are closer to atoms, minerals, crystals, vegetal, Vegetal, kingdom or realm, animal, human. And then you also have stages of existence which are higher than human. Things which happen after you surpass the human condition. And they are all put on a wheel because the final point is somehow joining with the original point. Which is of course very puzzling. In the meaning that the most simple consciousness, the consciousness of the atom. The consciousness of the crystal of the crystalline network is a little bit like the consciousness of the buddha the consciousness of the enlightened being in the meaning that it is peaceful universal without samskaras and so on of course there is a huge difference between the one that starts the wheel and the one that stops the wheel because starting the wheel is a very primitive state of consciousness and and reaching to the end of the wheel is an accomplished state of consciousness. Therefore, dharma, which is a name which means the will of God in theistic religion, it means the order of the universe in the non-theistic universe, it means it is exactly what the Bible would have called righteousness. Let's do all things in all righteousness, says somebody in the Bible. That means exactly the way would the way God would have it. This righteousness is equated by the word dharma in Sanskrit, which was taken over also by the Buddhists. And the wheel of Dharma means uh, in a certain way it is related to the concept of the will of God and with a meaning of life. Like when we look at the way spirits are, the way the universe is. What is the meaning of all this? The meaning of all this is that we all evolve. And that's why we can say that the purpose of the universe from a certain standpoint is that it ensures a ground for evolution. I always tell you in beginning lectures, in the What is Yoga lecture, that when you ask the fundamental question, Who am I and why am I here? This is a question which at a personal level, cannot or should not be answered by someone else for you. You cannot have a guru that gives you a couple of hints, you know, sort of hints that I'm going to show you or tell you what the meaning of your life is. This personal approach is not feasible and it is not accepted because it is considered to be a strictly personal revelation. But on the other hand, The question, who are we and what we are doing here, also has a general answer, exactly as humanity has a collective subconscious mind where we share some general aspects of the condition of being human, such as we all have a DNA which makes us live around 80 years of age. That's the average life expectation for the average citizen, no? that is in the collective subconscious mind. If any one of you will ever want to achieve the C D of living 250 years instead of 80, you will have first of all to defeat that. You will have to step out from being just another Tom, Dick and Harry. As long as you are just another Tom, Dick and Harry, you are hypnotized by the planetary mind that you have to die when you are 80 or around that time. Therefore, There is a part of the mind which tells us very important things, essential things which we never get to see and that we share with everybody. And then there is an individual part of the mind where, for example, you know your pin code from your credit card and you don't give it to anybody. If it would be belonging to the collective subconscious mind, everybody would sooner or later intuitively discover what your pin code is, but it isn't. This doesn't belong to the collective subconscious mind. It belongs to a part of the island. It's a discontinuity. It's a protuberance. It is something which belongs to you for the time being, as long as you have this part of the conscious mind. It's the same with dharma. There exists a personal dharma, which is called in Bhagavad Gita Svadharma. That means one's own dharma. Why is he and he and she and she why are they born on the face of the planet Earth? And that's a personal thing. Don't give me any general answer to that question. Oh, they are born to be happy. Yeah, that's valid for everybody. Oh, they are born to evolve. Yes, that's valid for everybody. But there is a sva dharma, which is like your little thing. And then there exists a general answer to this question, which is why are we all around here and one of the general answers to this question and this can be said like ancient texts and ancient sages have already given this answer long time ago everyone is here and that means also the animals the plants and any sentient being in this universe they are all here they are manifested they are incarnated because they are evolving they are in a process of evolution and that means that the wheel of Dharma is spinning. Imagine like a circular river that flows in a circle and therefore it's like as long as you are here, you evolve. This is a very, 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 very important concept which is explained beautifully by Yogananda Paramahamsa in one chapter of his famous book, autobiographical book and this is a concept which we explicitate fully in the metaphysical workshop in this summer because this is a concept without which you cannot explain spiritual practice you cannot understand any of the fundamentals of spiritual practice and spiritual life and that's why this is called this would be the wheel of Dharma in Tibet for example they have taken this original Buddhist concept and they made it more visual and more concrete but less um, abstract less general. They transform the wheel of Dharma in a wheel which is divided in six sectors and those six sectors are the six lokas, the six worlds and the meaning is somewhat the same. The meaning is as you evolve you may go through the six basic lokas and sometimes you are a human being, sometimes you have been an animal, sometimes you may have gone even through hell many centuries or millennia ago if you did some very negative karma sometimes you can be inborn in the locus of the gods of the deities and in this way the human being continues their evolution it's still shown as a wheel that wheel is kept in its teeth by kalachakra by mahakala by the deity that symbolizes time the male equivalent of kali from the indian metaphysics And it shows that this wheel of Dharma is like a clock. It's like the dial of a clock. The clock is ticking. We are evolving. As time is passing, we are going on in our evolution. That's the general question. So the wheel of Dharma is spinning. But then why do they say that the wheel, that Buddha is spinning? He kept his first discourse, and then he set the wheel of Dharma in motion. Part of this statement is just a little bit of Buddhist egocentrism. It's like there's never been anybody like Buddha before, and probably there's never been anybody like Buddha ever since. That's exactly how the Christians view Jesus, and like how the Krishna lovers, they view Krishna. Like everybody thinks that their their object of sympathy is the supreme object of sympathy, and unequaled by anybody else. Of course, there had been Buddhas born on this planet before Buddha himself. The most brilliant example would be in India itself, Krishna, who was born 3,500 years, 4,000, 4,500 years ago. The date is not known and Krishna was an avatar, So Krishna could claim easily a Buddha status. So did Krishna come and live on earth? and he did not set the wheel of Dharma into motion, and all India was just lying dead, and then luckily that Gautama Buddha was born, wherever he was born, in Nepal or wherever, and he set the wheel of Dharma into motion. That's not like somebody who has a sort of Germanic engineering spirit, would scorn at such a statement, because we'll say this statement is not scientifically accurate. And it isn't, indeed, Because that's not the purpose. It's a statement which is typically Indian and it's a statement which is devotional and therefore somewhat absurd from a logical standpoint. It simply says, we don't know what Krishna did, but we know that for sure um, Buddha definitely gave uh, the possibility of evolution. For example, when the Tibetan gurus, much later, because the Tibetan Buddhism appeared more than a thousand years later, it's a refined, late form of Buddhism. And in in Tibet, when they describe the ten conditions for a human being to be able to search for enlightenment and find enlightenment, there are ten conditions, very logical, some of them really, really obvious common sense, some of them a bit more surprising, and some of them scandalous, such as... The first or the tenth of them is, you should have been born a man. Like if you are a woman, quit thinking about enlightenment. Just do good deeds and wait for the next life. Which of course in Tantra is not the way we see these things. So coming back to it, that's why I said not all of them are equally acceptable or logical. But one of the ten conditions is, you should be born in a world or on a planet where a buddha had already been born before you and not only that he had been born but he had been compassionate enough to speak about the dharma and to outline it and to trace a path like if you are born in a world where no buddha has ever been born how are you going to search for nirvana because you don't even know that nirvana exists there has been no buddha born exactly as they assume that buddha himself he was uh, a prince, he didn't know about the suffering of the world, he saw a dead man, he saw an old man, he saw a sick man, and suddenly he realized, oh my God, I live in a prison planet, I live in a world which is full of shit and pain, I better try to find a solution to this because sooner or later I'm going to taste of all this suffering and pain. And he searched and searched and there was nobody, not according to the history of India, according to the history of India way before Buddha, Krishna had been born and Krishna gave his famous teaching from the Bhagavad Gita which is at least a thousand years older than Buddha himself historically. And therefore, does it mean that the teaching of Krishna is nonsense? That it doesn't reach to enlightenment? It doesn't, it cannot lead somebody to enlightenment? No, it means that because the early Buddhism was opposed to Hinduism like Hinduism is outdated and anachronic they kind of flushed Krishna down the toilet as well. Like, okay, whatever was before, we make a clear table of it and we start with Buddha. Buddha is the first. But what I'm saying here is the correct vision when you practice metaphysics, when you think about the universe not in a religious way, like fanatically promoting your own religion all the time, but when can you zoom back the camera and see the whole humanity, the whole history of humanity the whole spiritual picture of humanity then you know that who spun the wheel of dharma who set it into motion the wheel of dharma was moving anyway at the time when buddha lived it's too bad for buddha that he didn't know already that there were some methods revealed on the face of planet earth for reaching cosmic consciousness and uh, the infinite But okay, Buddha, he was apparently, he was a virgin, he didn't know he was searching vainly by using even stupid methods such as eating one grain of rice per day, like extreme, almost fasting to death, and things like that. And eventually Buddha finally had the great inspiration and he found it, but he found it without a guru, without a lineage, without a method, without having read the Bhagavad Gita and uh, glory to Buddha because he found it from scratch. That's true. Glory to Buddha because he found it from scratch. Although let's not forget that the most of the meditation methods which Buddha practiced, he did not invent them. Buddha spent years and years with those samans in the forest. And of course he learned from them all their forms of fasting, trataka and whatever they did. So even Buddha did not invent everything. He did not invent the fire and the wheel. He just had the perseverance to break through at a point, and that still makes his glory very great. I'm not denying it. He set a method which worked for 25 centuries, but put things into perspective. The wheel of Dharma was spinning anyway, because as long as at least one human being on the face of this earth before that time had already reached Nirvana, then the, the wheel of Dharma was in motion. If you go in a more radical way, the wheel of Dharma is in motion, even when there are not human beings and enlightened human beings on the face of the earth. According to the Darwinistic view, which is not necessarily true, but a sort of evolutionary view, at least, on the face of this earth, we are saying, okay, there is evolution or there was evolution on the face of this earth. Even on when on the face of this earth, there were only animals. There must have been a time where the human beings had not appeared. And at that time, was there no evolution? Maybe in Christianity, you see the animals as having no soul. But in Buddhism, even the animals have a conscious principle. And therefore, they evolve. And the trees become animals. And the animals become humans. And the humans become superhumans and therefore even when they were not enlightened human beings they were just a bunch of animals on the face of this earth and the advent of the human being was awaited by all the planet by all the nature and then there was still evolution so the wheel of dharma was spinning even before there were humans on the face of this earth so to say that buddha set it into motion it's a bit of egocentric it's a Buddhisticocentric way of presenting things, like there was no spinning of the wheel of Dharma before we were around, before we showed up, starting with Buddha. Metaphysically, that's not right. You can appreciate it only in terms of devotion and veneration, which they have for the Buddha. And the correct image is this. Matter is responding to entropy and gravitation. And the material part of each and every one of us here is heavy, dull, and tropic, and it wishes to become a couch potato. In a Western form of metaphysics, this was described under the inspired terms of fire and ice. The universe, instead of being made of Purusha and Prakriti, spirit and matter, it's made of fire and ice. And ice means death, like when everything freezes, it never turns back it's frozen and dead and this is a northern mythology where ice is the enemy ice is the hell and the death and fire is life fire is like spirit in the human being that means we have a body made of atoms just take you are made let's say of 70 kilos of atoms take 70 kilos of atoms whichever atoms in whichever way and put them somewhere and watch them for the next five million years. What's going to happen with those 70 kilos of matter? They are just going to decay and decay and decay and decay. It's entropy. It cannot get better. It always gets at a higher entropic level, which means at a higher chaos level, which means at a more and more decayed level. Matter does not have the power to stand up, Matter stands up in the moment when it is fertilized by a mysterious factor called life. And when you have life, suddenly you have a beaver catching up some of those 70 kilos of matter, of atoms, and beating them into a dam across the river. Suddenly, matter is not amorphous. You have beavers building dams. You have Egyptians building pyramids. You have French people building Eiffel Towers. No, you have things, it's from chaos, you turn to order. That's only because of life, intelligence and consciousness, which is fire, which is the spirit injected into matter. So matter left alone becomes chaotic. If you want in a Tantric language, Shakti without Shiva becomes chaotic. There, there is a need for the consciousness to go there to enliven the matter and to give it a meaning. It doesn't mean that Shiva is better than Shakti, because Shiva without Shakti has nothing to enliven. Shiva without Shakti is like lame, no legs, no arms, can do nothing. But Shakti without Shiva is like a robot escaped out of control. It has no controller it has no clear conscience or consciousness so coming back to our story the whole universe the whole life is a game of Shiva and Shakti in which Shiva I'm going to use a sexual tantric symbolism in which Shiva penetrating Shakti awakens her inspires her the presence of the spirit in matter this is viewed in human history for example from time to time We have great spirits, like Buddha, like Jesus, like Krishna that I mentioned, and others. These are some of the real well-known ones. These people come, and when they come and they show, they are abnormally strong. Like, you know, Jesus keeps raising the dead, walking on water, changing the weather, healing the lepers. And in the moment when the apostles even try to imitate him, they fail miserably and constantly he has to scold them, to tell them, oh, you of little faith. Like even when you see me walking on water and still you don't believe it. No, it's like you are so imperfect. There's so much doubt in you that even when it's rubbed in your face and still you are doubting, still you don't have the faith. So then how did Jesus have so much faith that he could pull a whole world a whole civilization on his shoulders. No, all of them had doubts. And this man, although pulled by his neck with the strings of doubt of millions of people, he pulled them like a, like a horse, you know, like an ox. He pulled them on his back. He had so much. These are extraordinary spirits that come and they give an impulse. And here, the best symbol, instead of the wheel of Dharma, replace it for a second with the prayer wheels of the Tibetans all of you who have been in a buddhist temple especially the chinese and tibetan style have seen the prayer wheels and it's one of the most simple forms of devotion in tibetan buddhist mysticism that when people visit a temple they give a shove they pass by those prayer wheels and they move them all and the prayer wheel does 10 turns and then it slows down and it stops unless somebody else comes and while it's still turning it gives it one more shove That's the story with the wheel of Dharma. It's not that the wheel of Dharma was stopped when Buddha came and nobody was evolving and the animals were not evolving and the vegetal spirits were not evolving. Nothing was evolving. Everything was waiting for Buddha. The planet was evolving, but Buddha coming gave it a shove, gave it a fresh shove. That's why every time when somebody of that magnitude is born, it's like the Dharma increases because people see one like Jesus some people get really pissed off at him and they become demonized and they want to crucify him and other people get a lot of faith and a lot of devotion and they want to follow in his footsteps and they want to do whatever to be celibate for a lifetime to do 12 hours of prayer per day to go get vegetarian to fast to whatever it takes just because jesus was there jesus was there for three years and a half and left a mark which made millions of people go into austerities religiousness and for 2000 years like jesus is a big shove not only buddha set the wheel of dharma into motion jesus himself gave a huge tug to the wheel of dharma through just his presence and teachings and his personal example. And so did Buddha and so did Krishna and so did Ramakrishna in India in the 19th century to a lesser extent but still considerable from the standpoint of Indian civilization. And so did others. Basically we can say Paramahamsa Yogananda and I am not very happy with him having done this but that was his choice. Paramahamsa Yogananda eventually said Every spiritual master, every spiritual person that accomplishes spirituality could be called, if you stretch the meaning of the word, it's a violation of the original meaning, could be called an avatara and it's like a person that shoves the wheel of Dharma because every master inspires. If you go now in Rishikesh at the Divine Life Society of Swami Shivananda you are going to find a lot of tamasic, people who do not do spiritual practice. But in the 1950s, when Swami Shivananda was there, they were all like electrified. They were like walking on fire all day long. They were completely on because the master was among them and his personal accomplishment was magnetizing them. People said, if this fat guy did it, I can also do it, you know? It's encouraging me, it shows me that enlightenment is not an abstract thing. It's feasible, it's here and now. That's why the presence, when Jesus was there, He was inspiring people in a special way. When Krishna was there, He was inspiring people in a special way. This is setting into the motion the wheel of Dharma, that every time when a spiritual person comes, some of them gigantic, some of them not so gigantic, they give an encouragement. They give like Islam was taking a certain direction and then in the 12th century, the great Rumi lived and Islam after Rumi was never the same. Islam became a much richer thing with all the 12 Sufi denominations And with all the 12 Sufi methods and so on, and it became more practical, more devotional, more strong than it had been in the first five centuries. It's like the Prophet Muhammad with his presence, with the inspiration which he received from the archangels and so on. He brought something and people were electrified. And then when Rumi lived, he also brought something. Tibet Buddhism was running low. But then when Padmasamba brought, especially to the Tibetans and in the Tibetan, Mongolian, Chinese area, Himalayan, nepali area, he brought a great encouragement again. He brought a great momentum. So every spiritual influence is setting the wheel of Dharma into motion. Setting the wheel of Dharma into motion means that Buddha gave a strong tug. That's the moment when Buddha did his consecration. That's the moment when Buddha decided not to sit 28 days in nirvana and die, but to do karma yoga for the planet Earth out of compassion. That's when Buddha decided to speak. He could have shut up about what he had reached and keep it for himself. And then we wouldn't have known about Buddha and Buddhism would not have existed. Therefore, it's an important thing. It's the day when Buddha opened his mouth for the crowds. And in the day when Buddha decided to spread his wisdom to the crowds, to the planet Earth, and it became his first act of Karma Yoga. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's called setting the wheel of Dharma into motion. Although, again, I'm saying the wheel of Dharma was moving anyway, with or without Buddha. But nobody can deny that Buddha has had a great contribution. It is the observation of Osho Rajneesh some 30 years ago where he said he expressed the view where he said that he liked Buddhism and he liked Buddha in particular over many other Asian, either South Asian like in India or Southeast or Eastern Asian like in China and the others, um, spiritual methods because he said look at Buddhism. Buddhism can be a 2,500 year old tree but it still blooms from time to time, and it still gives fruits. Like people in Buddhism, sometimes they reach Nirvana. In Thailand, people considered 50 years ago that in this monastery on the mainland called Suan Mok, the great teacher from there, which was called Buddha Dasa, Ajan Buddha Dasa, had, was actually an enlightened person that had reached Nirvana. Therefore, it still yields flowers. In many religions, the flowers don't seem to be there. It's like an old tree that slowly, slowly becomes mummified. For example, how many Christian saints did there exist in the early centuries of Christianity? Tons and tons of them. The calendar is full of saints that you don't even know who is Saint Visarion. You ever heard about a saint called Visarion, you know? Of course, if you look in the dictionary, you'll find who Visarian was and in which or who is Basil the Great. No, most people don't don't even know who Basil the Great is or in what century he lived. Most of them lived in early centuries, and as you go towards later centuries, it becomes more and more difficult to find one. In the later centuries, the Catholic Church has started giving the saintly title to all sorts of people—people people who did social work people who did charity, very important popes, and stuff like this. That's not the definition of a saint. A saint is not a charitable person, and a charitable person is not a saint. To be a saint, it is about reaching a privileged state of consciousness, of mystical union, of communion with the divine consciousness, and being in that state of consciousness for a a period of time, and all that. And that's why it's all you can see the agonizing stage in which Christianity and other religions have gone because they are straining like a constipated person to produce a little saint somewhere. Oh, Mother Teresa, she's famous. She's, but then they found out letters from Mother Teresa ten years after they canonized her. They found out letters in which she was writing honestly that she doubted the existence of God. So How can you have a saint who doubts the existence of God? They they were too hasty. In the old days, the Christian church, because they could afford, they allowed 50 years, 100 years to pass before they canonized the person. So that all the truth about that person should come to the surface, any letter, any something, any memory, so that the church should have all the facts in their hand before they could decide if this was not going to be some Trojan horse or some burning coal or something. And you know, they wanted to have all the facts, but with Mother Teresa, why the heck didn't they wait 50 years at least? Because they have nobody else. They have no more saints. It's like a tree without flowers, you know? And they have to pretend that there are still flowers and fruits on the tree. And therefore they promote, as soon as they see a little leaf sprouting somewhere, they say, oh, that leaf looks like a flower. It's not a flower, it's just a little leaf, just barely sprouting. That's why Osho Rajni said, you know, it's like Buddhist, Buddha generated a very powerful tree. There are lineages in Indian yoga. Like how many people do get enlightened today by following the method of Patanjali? Patanjali is supposed to be one of the founding fathers. 2000, 2500 years ago, you go in India, they give you a lot of lip service. Oh, Patanjali. Patanjali, really? Who is getting enlightened by using the method of Patanjali in the last 150 years? Nobody. Nobody. There is not a yogi who claims that they use the method of Patanjali and they reach samadhi. So the method of Patanjali is superb and completely useless nowadays because it doesn't give fruits. It's about what gives fruits, what really works. That's what matters. That's why Buddha is having a very strong method, a method which was not easy to adulterate. It's true, the momentum decreases. The first disciples of Buddha, they had a huge momentum, and many of them reached Nirvana. Out of his direct disciples, many became apostles of Buddhism in the early centuries. As the time passes, you you go to Bangkok and the main Buddhist shrines, are this elephant with four heads, which is a modified Ganesha form, and the modified form of Shiva or Brahma, like in front of the World Trade uh, Plaza, World Central Plaza, and so on, where people come and pray for money. It's all, you know, like, I've seen at least four shrines in the center of Bangkok, and I ask the Thais, what is this shrine for? They all the time invariably say, it's for money. Like, don't people pray for something else also? It's like... Isn't there something else of relevance you know such as grace, compassion, other things you know it's like no that's why you know you come from a culture where people are supposed to be compassionate even to a little ant and then they kill hundreds of millions of chickens and pigs and so on is like then you are questioning. So many religions have this, that they start at the peak because there is a very powerful shove on the wheel of Dharma and people are touched and moved and magnetized. And then as the centuries pass, people start becoming couch potatoes. The ice is taking over, the fire is over and the ice starts taking over. And then that religion starts becoming more and more lip service, formal, institutional, institutionalized, dead, inert, and then there are not even flowers there on that tree. That is why all this imagery, that Buddha set the wheel of Dharma into motion, or better said, from the standpoint of yogis, that Buddha gave a serious shove to the wheel of Dharma, accelerating evolution, Because you are going to say, but wait a second, isn't the wheel of Dharma spinning? Yes. And then Buddha is coming and he's telling to people, wake up, you are prisoners. You are not here for fun. You are prisoners in a cell and you are feeling good in your cell. You just got used to your cell. But just push your arms to the left and to the right, there are walls. You are limited. You are prisoners. So wake up, do what I did. You can reach it. I did it in six years. You can also do it in six years. Or in 12 years, or whatever the Buddhist standards are. But again, you know, take the thumb out of your asses and get to work. Set yourself into action. This is a powerful, powerful impulse, which means when one like Buddha comes, or one like Krishna, or one like Ramakrishna, or one like Rumi, People start practicing like crazy, large numbers of people practice piggybacking on the aspiration and inspiration of Buddha. Buddha has so much grace on him that he can spread it to hundreds, thousands and in history to millions of people who look at his statue and they bow down with reverence to Buddha. You know, why, why, why keep this reverence? There was a lot of grace there that inspired many people and the history of Asia with the end of the world implicitly would have not been the same should Buddha have died young or never been born. That's why uh, the presence of the Buddha and what he did is very important. It's one of the important shoves in the history of the world where he did that. The Blessed One set the wheel of the most excellent dharma in motion at Sarnath, and he began to preach to the five bhikshus, after he gave them the initial statement, opening to them the gate of immortality and showing them the bliss of nirvana. And when the Blessed One began his sermon, a rapture thrilled through all the universe. This is a very beautiful statement, the last one which is showing the fact that we are not alone. Most people, when they look at these things, they look in very egocentric ways. But we are constantly in a universe where there are many parallel universes, many presences, very few human beings can see the spirits, the higher spirits, which are here now present they are present, but you have to be a clairvoyant. You have to have the sixth sense developed to see them, feel them, hear them, or perceive them in some way. And very rare are the people who have that, and also it has to be a balanced thing, which is giving, of course, because otherwise it can result in insanity. Sometimes people who are mentally disturbed, they also hear voices, And actually, it's not an illusion. Those voices really exist and they belong to somebody. But unfortunately, the mad person cannot identify them, cannot stop them, doesn't understand anything, and they finish by producing confusion, disaster, suicidal thoughts, uh, madness, suffering of different kinds. So, what I'm saying is every time when you do an act, Somebody, sometimes the whole universe or at least the higher spirits of the universe who have the freedom to see everything, like the devas, the deities, they witness you. You are not alone. Some people feel happy that they don't see that because they would be embarrassed. Like sometimes when you decide to, take, to tell a lie and smear somebody with calumny or something, the angels and the devas are witnessing you. And you are making a fool of yourself in front of all the moral, higher instances of the universe. Sometimes you de- you decide to be compassionate, you decide to be forgiving, and all the gods have a smile of serenity. Like it's like you see something beautiful in a circus or in a cinema, or so you are looking, and somebody has suddenly done something amazing, and the whole audience goes like. Oh, 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 it's like, this is so marvelous, you know. We just witnessed a miracle right now. It is said that sometimes, even when human beings make love in a divine transfigured way, even they, these gods, gather around and witness them. Yeah, they are peeping toms, which are devas, and they like to see you making love, if you make love in a way which is satisfactory to them. And then they praise you and they shower invisible flowers over you. Like, you are almost one of us. You are coming to us. We can see that soon you will be one of us. No, like you are not an animal. You are not a gorilla. You are not. No, there is something divine growing up in you. And the gods rejoice to see that. The angels rejoice to see you loving, forgiving doing all the divine things because for them it's like a moral victory it's look the spirit has taken over these 100 kilos of atoms and puts them to work it this is not a couch potato anymore it's a spirit it's a being that stands up and makes spiritual efforts to stand up to look up to the sky it's like somebody who is rising from the ashes and standing up and the angels and the high entities from Shambhala, they are clapping with joy. They are applauding, they are greeting. It's like, it's so wonderful to see. It's exactly like you would see a flower blossoming or you'd go on the field in the spring and you will see the wheat sprouting. And like a farmer, you'd be joyous. Like, look, there is wheat. It's spring again. We are going to have food. This is the miracle, miracle of life. This is the miracle of nature. This is the miracle of God. There is a spontaneous natural joy when you see that love and life is triumphant, that it wins again, that life is irrepressible, that this moment... And the same with spirituality. That's why here they said it very wisely, that when he began his sermon, a rapture thrilled through all the universe, like all the devas, were enchanted that this man who reached nirvana, who he was not selfish and compassionately he was giving it to the rest of humanity, and that this was going to have such wonderful effects for so many millions of people for thousands of years, and thus the devas, the arhats, the, all the high entities, they were thrilled with joy. There is a beautiful paragraph in the fathers, in one of the stories from the fathers of the desert, where one of the elders in that story, in that community, is passing away. And when he's passing away, as the expression says, because there is a Christian expression where you say, the heavens are opening, the skies are opening. Like normally, they are closed. But there are very privileged moments when the skies are opening. Like there was a tiny, tiny such phenomenon, not very clear, in the famous phenomenon at Fatima in Portugal at Fatima in Portugal a hundred years ago, there was this mysterious apparition which was ascribed to Virgin Mary, although it was not really really clearly Virgin Mary, and thousands of people witnessed it, and they had the very strange impression like something like a hole was opening in the sky, like suddenly the communication was uh almost visible normally it's not the skies are closed There are there are of course some rules of the game which makes that you can reach to heavens but you can reach to heavens through prayer through meditation through spiritual practice and then there are some customs you know you have to pass some custom offices you know where they say okay now you can go higher and the rest of the world who doesn't practice doesn't go higher So normally, the ceiling between the floors is guarded. But there are special moments of grace when the skies are opening. Like, for example, when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, not only that this miraculous star was shining, but people saw dead people, people saw angels, people saw... There were all sorts of very crazy phenomena happening, like an interference between the other world and this world. Like the skies were open, The heavens have opened. Because Jesus entering in this world. In the same way. When this old man from the fathers of the desert. He died. Suddenly there appeared like a opening of the heavens. And there is an incredible story. Which every time when I read it. Gives me total goosebumps. Because that's what we give as example in the art of dying. No you want art of dying. Here is art of dying. If you want Die like this one, and you will be really good. And when he died, he was dying, and then he said, I can see, or I can feel, I don't know exactly, I don't remember the words, but he said, the angels are here, they are coming to take me. Of course, everybody was thrilled, like the guy was delirious, because he was close to death, and so on or what. But the funny thing was that he looked, he looked like he was getting light on his face he looked like he was he looked happy as he was getting closer to the death by the minute suddenly he said now the heavens are open okay for him the others couldn't see it but they could piggyback on his witness because he was talking freely about what he was going through and he said the heavens are open and I start seeing the angels coming to greet me well it's good it's good that it's not the demons who come to greet you Because then you would go to the other place and it would be the gnashing of the teeth. So it's good news that you see the angels coming. And what next? And then as he was dying more and more, he became even more transfigured in his face. And he said, I see hosts of saints and mystics. All the saints of the past are there. There are choirs of angels singing. They all came to greet me. It's like I'm returning back home or something. And his face was something amazing everybody started having goosebumps and so on and then it went like this and at some point he said the Apostles themselves like the Apostles are the superior Saints the maximum Saints and he said the Apostles are here and then the people it is written in the codices in the chronicles of the uh, of that area of the fathers of the desert that the people who are witnessing this they started seeing an unnatural light they said that his face it was just a hut in the sixth century we're talking about. No, like no technicalities of any kind. And this guy started shining. His face started shining like he was a Halloween pumpkin or something like this. He was shining from within. You know, and they got, a, I mean, they said, My God, you know, it's like either the devil is pulling a trick on us or if this is the real thing. And then this guy. At some point when he was transfigured and his death was coming, he said, now the blessed virgin is here. And then everybody, they wrote down, they say the light in the hut became unbearable. Nobody could even look at this dying man. They had to avert their heads because this guy was shining like the sun. He became like made of light suddenly. And the last thing which this old man said, he said, now the Lord is here. And in the moment when he said that, there was like a lightning. In the hut and then he was gone so it was like a climax it went like higher 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 pump. No, this is what I'm talking about both in terms of art of dying and in terms of the fact that there is a rapture that thrilled through all the universes this was a great event this man must have been a great saint and all the spiritual beings had gathered to celebrate it like this man was coming from physical mortality into spiritual immortality and this was a festival it's not often that we celebrate such an event it doesn't happen all day long it happens seldom it happens maybe several times in a century or several times in a decade not much more often that's why it was Again, the same thing with Buddha. The Buddhist authors who wrote this, they were aware of the fact that we are not alone, that we are contained into a great cycle of evolution. And then Buddha said, this is now we are in the very text of what he had to say. He said, the spokes of the wheel, he speaks about the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of evolution, the righteousness, the order of the universe, he says the spokes of the wheel are the rules of pure conduct, or as we'd say in yoga, the yama and niyama. Justice is the uniformity of their length. That, that's very difficult to fathom, right? That if unless the spokes of a wheel are equal, you will not have a wheel and you will have something which cannot spin properly. It's necessary that all the spokes are even. This evenness, Buddha interpreted it as justice. That the universe measures with the same measure for a king and for a beggar, for a man and for a woman, for an animal and for a human being, for a demon as well as for a deva. There are some things which belong to the universal justice, such as the law of karma works in pretty similar ways everywhere in this universe so first he says this wheel of Dharma that I'm spinning the spokes of it are morality good conduct justice is the uniformity of their length wisdom is the tire which means the outcome the periphery what is at the periphery the daily life being confronted with daily life that's where we see If we are what we say we are. There are two people who say they are Napoleon. And one of them is a madman that has to be committed in a hospital. And the other one is Napoleon. And is in character. He has the courage of Napoleon. And all the attributes of Napoleon. Therefore, the the daily life, the existence, is the measure of all things. You can say that you are Jesus but let's see you in life, then we see what sort of Jesus you are, if you are indeed. That was the wisdom of Bandler or Grinder, one of the founders of NLP, when some dude came to his office and he said he believed he was Jesus. And then Bandler started building a cross to crucify him in his office, in his consultation office and this guy ran away screaming and he said man you are more fucked up than i am no like grinder said oh you are jesus let's see a little crucifixion then you know it's like you know you want to play jesus with me i'm going to give you jesus you know and he was so crazy that this guy realized that this man was insane and he was going to do it and then he gave up the acting suddenly he was not crazy anymore because when it came to crucifixion he had to choose between being an interesting madman or being crucified. And it was much more simple to run away and to be exposed. So that's why wisdom is the tire, because the daily life, the periphery, is with a great importance. It is life which is the measure of all things. So, it, Like Gurjiev said it in a different way. Gurjiev said it's not enough to be good. You have to be good for something. Because many people can say, yeah, but I'm a very good person. And what have you done on the tire in life? I've been a total loser all day long. Yeah. All the losers say that they are good. you hear many people talking about drug addicts who died of an overdose, or people who talk about criminals who are in prison, that no, I knew him personally. It's so unfortunate because this was really a good person was a good person then why didn't they become like Buddha these are just pathetic ignorant excuses no it's not enough to be good that's an abstract but I am a good but I'm a good but I killed 20 people meanwhile you know it's like what kind of good and I still living in the in the utopia that I'm good that's a utopia it's the daily life it's life itself which shows you your measure and thoughtfulness I'm sorry, modesty and thoughtfulness are the hub in which the immovable axle of truth is fixed so in the hub, the central aspect he he defines them as modesty and thoughtfulness modesty which is one of the forgotten values it was Mahatma Gandhi who reminded to people in the 20th century where he said humility is the solid foundation of all the other virtues like there are many virtues that you are brave that you are intelligent that you are this that you are that but if you are brave and intelligent and you are not humble you will you can become a demon a destructive demon the humility the humility is the solid foundation courage without humility is can can become destructive it can become unwise that's why Buddha calls it modesty and thoughtfulness. No, we know what talk, when you say, Oh, how thoughtful you are. Thoughtfulness is a way of putting yourself in the shoes of the other person and thinking, I wonder how this person feels right now. What could I do? You know, if I discover that the person doesn't feel really good, then what could I do? Is there something which I can do for this? I want to be. It's true, you cannot always do great, thoughtful people. Like, try to think, Jesus himself saw many beggars. He just didn't give them money to become wealthy or something. There is a limit beyond which you have to admit that people live their lives and have their lessons, which they need to have according to their karma. So you cannot change their karma because then you change their lesson and it's not valid anymore. But of course, Jesus, he was thoughtful because sometimes he did see people that were agonizing extremely and then he helped, even when his help was over the top, even when his help was basically miraculous. So there is a common sense in this thoughtfulness, not chaotic, you know, you cannot just go around and solve everyone's problem. Jesus didn't do it, Buddha didn't do it, but still the concept of modesty and thoughtfulness are brought here and they are the hub. The hub is like the the core of the matter, is about modesty and thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness uh, is as close as Buddha gets to Anahata Chakra. Buddha's teaching paradoxically has only very small amounts of Anahata Chakra. He does share some Anahata Chakra from India, but his concept of compassion is not a pure Anahata Chakra. It links with Anahata Chakra a little bit. It cocktails with Anahata Chakra a little bit. But it's mostly on Ajna Chakra. The loving kindness, the compassion that you show to animals, that you think about all the sentient creatures of the universe. And all that is not the same thing as the Christian type of mercy or pity, which comes all, it's a melting thing from Anahata Chakra. Why am I saying this? Because Buddha himself, coming from an area which is adjacent, or today actually part of Nepal, Buddha himself is on the borderline between the actual Indian civilization and some of the Asian things. And I'm referring even to the cultures, to the tribes, to the geographical areas, to the communities, and yes, even to the DNA, to the racial profile, because it is a very well-known thing That, especially in Asia we do not have almost any spiritual tradition which is dominant on the heart in Burma Thailand Vietnam Laos Cambodia China whatever else is in this area yeah you do not find a single major tradition which is dominant on anahata chakra such as the Christianity in the West, or such as the Sufi in the Islamic tradition, or others. It didn't catch, because it is a typology of the Asian people. Indians are not. These Indians, the the Indo-European style, the Aryan typology, as well as the Dravidian from South India, they are a total different genetical typology than the Asian typology. Again, 50 years ago people were talking relaxed about races, the yellow race, the white race. Today it has become politically incorrect, although it's on the Olympic flags. Even the colors on the Olympic flags are black for Africa, yellow for Asia, white for Europe and North America. Like nobody had any qualm about calling people by the color of their skin. Ever since it has become politically incorrect and so on. So when we speak about typologies, You all know that there are typologies. For example, you will very, very seldom and basically never in totality see an Asian woman having breasts the size of most European women. Like everybody knows, on DNA, there are differences. There is no fuss about this and there is nothing politically incorrect. And I'm not saying this as any form of racism. Fact is that different DNA characteristics also give different biological and psychological characteristics. One of them in Asia is that in the most Asian cultures, exception made of India, which is different in terms of DNA anyway, there has not appeared any major Anahata tradition. In Buddhism, there is a bit of Anahata, but it's swallowed by a lot of concepts on Manipura and Ajna. Like when you read here that rules of pure conduct, This is Manipura. Justice is the uniformity of their length. This is Manipura. Wisdom is the tire. Wisdom is, sometimes Chinese use the word wisdom as skillfulness in daily life on Manipura. Sometimes it can mean a higher wisdom, ajna sahasrara. Modesty and thoughtfulness. Modesty is more the Chinese word for humbleness or being reserved, temperate, being a tolerant or something and thoughtfulness is that word which tries to approximate like if you are really thoughtful you are going to have a sort of empathy with other people and you are going to feel what they feel and you are not going to step on their toes too much because you are very thoughtful and so on that's coming closest to the Anahata to the love to the empathy on Anahata that when you are on Anahata you you feel other people's uh, predicament and because of this you are always merciful you see somebody in a bad situation your heart comes forth it's like so it is very interesting that as Buddha describes the wheel of Dharma the wheel of Dharma which he describes with the difference of this thoughtfulness which can also be a pretty mental thing like think If you don't feel other people's predicament, at least think, educate yourself to think. What I am doing now, is it producing pain to many other people? Is this something which is a pain? Maybe I shouldn't do it then. Maybe I know this is thoughtfulness, but it doesn't mean you feel tears in your heart and you are shaken to tears. And it's a more a thoughtful thing. It comes from mind, maybe some Manipura thing, Many people mix it up because in many cultures, especially in many Asian cultures, you have a lot of thoughtful, kind things that you don't disturb your neighbors, that you don't disturb the va, the harmony of the life of your neighbors. It exists in Japan, it exists in Thailand, this kind of concept that you should behave in, and every time when pharangs are going wrong, the Thais are shaking their head and they say these people don't understand Thai culture. And Thai culture means you have to have thoughtfulness. You have to have modesty and thoughtfulness. Like for example, you should never speak too loud. You know, like I know some of the people from the yoga community who have been here. And then they see one of the Farangs, even people from the school, going and handling situations with the Thai community really badly really badly and then they go and speak with a Thai person and they apologize and they say well you know this is somebody and the Thai person say we know because you speak like us but they don't understand like for example the Thais never shout at each other if, if, you, if you say I want a ticket to Bangkok tomorrow at the first class and the travel agent doesn't understand and says you said uh, air conditioned yeah yeah first class This reaction is stupid that you get irritated and insist in a noisy way. You have to smile like it's so embarrassing that you didn't get it the first time and it makes me feel a bit embarrassed that you didn't get it the first time and now you're losing a bit of face in front of me. And then I'm smiling and pretending it's nothing. And I'm saying, yeah, 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 at air condition, please, you know. like, And you keep the voice very low because you are thoughtful. That the person in front of you may become offended, may lose face, may feel stupid, may feel, you know. And this is not coming from Anahata. It's coming from a harmonious form of Manipura. This is a kind Manipura. That's why many people mix up in the Tibetan, Japanese, and other cultures, Asian. They mix up this kindness and that people smile all the time. They smile so that you shouldn't feel awkward. And, and when you go like this on the street, sometimes it happened to me in the first years when I was in Thailand. I had my issues, I was thinking about things, and suddenly in the elevator in Bangkok, a man or a woman would come to me, put their fingers on the corner of my mouth, and make me smile, you know? Like, they would ask me implicitly without words, why are you going frowning in Bangkok in an elevator? like showing like you are angry and scaring people around you, making everybody feel uncomfortable. You have to walk in such a way that everybody around you should feel comfortable. That's why you don't scream. You don't wave your arms. You don't make any threatening sudden movements. You behave. Do the Asians lose it? Yes, when they get drunk or when they get on drugs or when they get crazy. They lose it and then they take out the knife and they kill you. They take out the samurai sword and they kill you. Like they have these extremes for a long, long time. They stay very polite, very modest, very thoughtful, which is something which comes from Buddha's values. Like you have to... And they, in this way, this is a fake anahata. Many people think that there is anahata to it because they can't feel the chakras. It's not coming from anahata. This is... What you see in many Buddhist monks, it is a harmonious Manipura with a harmonious Ajna chakra. It's good values on Manipura and Ajna. Buddha himself is so funny when he does this because he basically describes the wheel of Dharma from a Manipura Ajna standpoint. That's why Buddhism did not catch in India because Indian people wanted to sing Kirtan and Bhajan. And it caught very much in Vietnam, Cambodia, China and so on because those people understood perfectly. Buddha preached a spirituality which fits more to the DNA of people who are more on Manipura on Ajna than to the DNA of people who are more on svadistana Anahata as the Indo-European typologies are and that is uh, very important to remember it's also why today when anahata chakra is becoming so problematic it's one of the first things which because we don't cultivate love we don't cultivate selflessness the consciousness of the ego stays especially in muladhara svadhisthana manipura the toughest strongest most exemplary people in the west Either you are talking about, uh, I don't know whom, Abraham Lincoln, or you talk about Thomas Alva Edison, or... No, even people that are praiseworthy, they are on Manipura. They are big Manipuristic people, and they are admired. Like, you know, how can you be a lovely American citizen and be better than Warren Buffett, Thomas Edison, or... uh, Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson or some. Like these are the gods of that culture. Anahata? It's not even understood. No, there's like, you don't have Rumis around there. You don't have Ramakrishnas. You don't have Saint Teresa of Avila. And when you have them, they are pretty much unknown. There is an American woman who developed a beautiful Anahata called Peace Pilgrim. She called herself. Very Most of the people, even American, they didn't even hear about the existence of a person. Edison, everybody knows about Edison. Everybody knows about Bill Gates. But everybody knows about Ronald McDonald. But when it comes to know about Peace Pilgrim, that's a ghost in the capitalistic Western culture because it's an outsider. It's a weirdo. It's an oddity. It's somebody that has anahata, And somebody that has anahata is a sort of a marginal person. It's a sort of a weird personality. And that's why you can see that today, especially in the North American environment, in Europe less because in some of the Christian Mediterranean countries, the anahata is there. Buddhism is much more popular than Christianity and others. Like there is a lot of harassment around Christianity, Islam and other religions which are mystical but Buddhism is okay you can even make the Dalai Lama honorary Canadian citizen or something like this because Buddhism is cool and that is um, you have to understand that these values are expressed from the standpoint of certain chakras is looking at the world through certain chakras and The last paragraph which I'm going to comment for tonight to conclude. I'm not concluding the text. Next time I will uh, conclude this um, discourse, the setting of the wheel of Dharma in motion. Then Buddha adds, oh, I'm sorry, there was one thing which I wanted to say in the previous one, because he said, uh, modesty and thoughtfulness are in the hub, which means in a central position. Like now he reached to the core, but then he gives a beautiful image because he says, for the, are the hub in which the immovable axle of truth is fixed. So truth is in the hub of the hub. Like the, in the hub, you have the axle of truth. The axis, if you prefer a geometrical name, of truth. So truth is more central than everything. Like Jesus said, find the truth and the truth shall set you free and I am the truth, the life, and the path, and all the other statements. And in India, it's the same. God is Shivam Satyam Sundaram Satyam, is the truth. What is the truth of all things? Like the Theosophic Society picked it up with genius. This was real pertinent when they wrote on the Theosophical Society publications the motto, there is no religion higher than truth. Because if a religion is the truth, then that's it. And if it's not the truth, then it, at the best, it's a metaphor, a myth, a legend, a fairy tale. But there is no religion which is higher than truth. We are looking for the truth exactly as scientists are looking for the truth. In metaphysics, we are also looking for the truth. Only we are looking of the truth about previous lives, future lives, eternity, eternal life liberation, nirvana like what's the truth about those we know the truth about or at least we think we know the truth about electricity or gravitation or um, I don't know mathematics the four basic operations or something but what's the truth about that's called metaphysics right? so truth is the axle of all things the whole wheel of dharma stands on the truth and this truth has two characteristics one It is immovable, which is another word which characterizes the absolute. Like the truth with capital T is immovable. It's not something which is negotiable. It's not my truth and your truth. It's not conditioned by the ego. There's only one truth. Like some Chinese people believe that Mao Zedong is a saint. There are Taoist and Buddhist temples where they are hanging a photo of Mao. Although Mao is known by most people to to be an ordinary murderer, one of the big mass murderers of history. What's the truth? Is Mao now in hell gnashing his teeth? Or is Mao actually graced and in paradise, and he is a savior of China, or something like that? That's like we want to know the truth, and the truth is, Immovable. Even if the Chinese won't like to hear the truth, the truth is still the same and it's non-negotiable. It's not a human thing. We are not bargaining on the truth. Many people don't like to hear the truth, right? We have in the Bible the disturbing thing that uh, God was angry at homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. And today it's politically correct, even if you are a Christian, to kind of make, you know, what's the truth? I'm not saying that I can convey to you the truth tonight or that I absolutely know it. But remember that whatever the truth is, it's going to be very uncomfortable for some of the people. Either those on the left side or those on the right side are going to be very angry at the truth because the truth is not politically correct and it's not always what you want to hear. The truth is simply... Immovable, it's a principle. And when it's immovable, the truth is of the category which Plato and Socrates, they quoted as archetypes, as principles. Like the principles are non-negotiable. To trace your path straight, says a proverb in your courses, attach your chariot to a star. The stars are the principles. The stars are the archetypes. They don't negotiate with the little needs of the human being. They are there. You no, know, like non-violence is non-violence. Truthfulness is truthfulness. No theft is no theft. The basic principles, the great principles, are non-negotiable. We, the human beings, can follow them or not, and many, many human beings they try to bend the principles. It's like I was about to give you a joke, which is typical, which is one of the most, but I will leave it for now because it's late. It's a hilarious joke about how people out of egoism, they are ready to bend any principle according to what is convenient for them to justify their things. I've, I've seen so many people taking theological statements and so on, and when they were convenient, then they would use them, and they would use them in a totally incorrect way in no way in which Jesus would have used them but paradoxically they used the words of Jesus to justify doing something which Jesus would have never done so that's why um, this is a very good statement that the truth the axle of truth is immovable and that's the foundation of the wheel of Dharma the wheel of Dharma starts from the hub and the hub is the axle of truth and an axle Is perpendicular on the wheel if this is the wheel the axle always goes like this which means all the Dharma is in one plane and then the truth is in another plane like on a pyramid you have the surface which is a square and then you have the height of the pyramid which is outside of this plane it's in another world it's in another dimension for a square you can have just as uh, two dimensions but for a pyramid You need to have three dimensions it's here up here so it's the same with this the truth the principles are in a higher dimension than the human beings the human world and the human life where Dharma manifests are here and God the truth the absolute is here is not in the same dimension it's in a higher dimension it's a higher reality a very very good it's a very inspired image that Buddha has given here so he has defined metaphorically this wheel of Dharma and then he says he who recognizes the existence of suffering like many people say oh no life is wonderful just keep going and you will see how much you can keep up this pretense of how wonderful life is, you know, everybody bites the dust sooner or later, and uh, you are going to see that the best you can come up with is that life is not wonderful, life is not terrible, life just is, okay, that sounds a bit more modest, you have reached some modesty, you are not just a phantasmagoric, so-called positive thinker, so, he who recognizes the existence of suffering. First, you have to recognize. Gurdjieff said, the awareness of our mediocrity is the spark, the first spark of genius. No? Like, if you don't even realize how mediocre you are, you, you are not even motivated to get out of your mediocrity. You are indulging in your mediocrity, and you are reveling in it, and saying, yeah, well, but so is she, and so is he, aren't we all? No, that's the judgment of the sheep that it's okay to be mediocre because everybody is mediocre around, you know. Gurdjieff said, the consciousness of our mediocrity is the first spark of genius. You know, like like first of all, you realize, my God, you know, I'm really boring. I'm really mediocre. It's like if I continue like this, nothing will happen. I won't do anything. I'm Mr. Nobody. I'm like, this is, no like, I, I, and then there comes the thing, okay, if I am modest enough to look myself in the mirror and to say this, then I'm ripe for transformation. Then I can grow. Otherwise, I'm satisfied with it and I'm just rolling in my mediocrity. No, because I'm not willing to come out of it. So he who recognizes the existence of suffering, that's the first step paradoxically. Recognize it. Its cause, which is the cause of suffering, according to Buddha, The cause of suffering is ignorance. So so stop being ignorant. So he who recognizes the existence of suffering, its cause, its remedy. What is the remedy? The remedy is the destruction of ignorance and its cessation that you can reach nirvana. There is a remedy and that you can reach to a termination of it. If you become like Buddha, you are not in a condition of ignorance and you are not in a condition of suffering. He who has recognizes this, has fathomed the Four Noble Truths. He will walk in the right path. So the first realization, according to Buddha, is first of all, he he's very smart in this way, because he says, first realize theoretically. That's the same that Shankaracharya says. First of all, realize that you are Atman, and that Atman is the same with Brahman. You're going to say Swami, but that's just pure bullshit, theory. Everybody in this room can say, I'm Atman. I actually am Atman. I know because Yogananda said it and Shankaracharya said it and so on. And Atman is one with Brahman, so I am that. Shankaracharya said even that was a great step forward. If you accept that and if you take that as tenet of your life, you are already way ahead of the people who haven't even had that intellectual realization. You are going to say, but Swami, if I die right now, I am still dying in fear and ignorance. I did not realize it. I do, I, mean, I have an intellectual understanding that it might be so. No, in the same way the Kashmiri Shaivis, they say, the first realization is to realize that there is only one cosmic person, that is Shiva. And if you are a person, then you are Shiva. Because there is no other person besides Shiva. You are that, you are Shiva. You can say, but I don't feel it. Okay, the feeling will come later with practice. It's like a self-suggestion where you repeat to yourself, I am Shiva, I am Shiva, I am Shiva so many millions of times until you start believing into it and feeling it. Like you say, I'm brave, the fire doesn't burn me. The fire doesn't burn me. The, father, the, the fire doesn't burn me. And then you walk on fire. What you can attain in a weekend with self-suggestion and you can go to a fire walking seminar throughout the world. The same thing is attainable in a spiritual way, but it takes more than a weekend usually because it's a suggestion, which is much, much bigger and therefore much, much more difficult to swallow. Therefore, Buddha is right. In the beginning, you have to at least accept intellectually. There are people, you know, the typical French intellectual that wants to contest everything. I said, oh yeah, buddha said that the cause of everything is uh, uh, ignorance yeah but i wonder i am of a different opinion like you want to do philosophy with buddha do but you haven't even reached the first level the first level is to say buddha was right the cause of the of the suffering is ignorance i believe in that intellectually now i want to feel it experience it solve it and get out of this therefore Buddha is right, no? Like there is a level of knowledge of the divine, which is no. Like Christian fundamentalists say, do you accept Jesus to be your savior? Do you take? Do you get baptized in the name of Jesus and tell him take him to be your savior? Then you are saved already, because in a certain way you made a step. You at least accepted that Jesus is there and saves. And therefore, you are one step ahead of those who still have qualms about that. Uh, Really? But I read somewhere in a book that Jesus didn't even exist. He probably was like Mickey Mouse invented by somebody, you know? If you are at that level, you are at a totally inferior level on the spiritual path. There is a level where you have a sort of intellectual certitude. Like Buddha was Crystal clear, Buddha was right. You can say, well, doesn't everybody agree? No, far from that. I remember some five years ago, I was talking with a very chaotic young man who thought he was a great metaphysical teacher somewhere in Canada. And I got, we took a lunch or a dinner together. And I got to the flabbergasting discovery that this man who had a site and business cards, and he was supposed to give great esoteric secrets He was a sort of a great, uh, he pretended to be a great teacher. This guy didn't even believe in karma. He said, no, I believe that karma is something which was made by the priests in the old days to keep people modest and to behave. That everybody is afraid that if you kill somebody, you are going to be killed. And if you break legs, you are going to have your legs broken. And this is something which keeps the society disciplined. And actually there is no karma. Because indeed, sometimes when you look in the world, You see diabolic people getting away with something and living a long life. And I know Stalin lived until 75 years of age or something and he died pretty unpainfully. No, just like that. And uh, that woman who appears in the movie Nanking and who was a nurse and she saved 250,000 people from being killed by the Japanese. She went back to San Francisco after that and committed suicide being depressed to death like people who are like angels and seven h- save hundreds of thousands of lives. Really, everybody says that woman had an incredible courage and she saved at least a hundred thousand, probably a quarter of a million of lives through her powerful, moral and brave attitude. And that woman, five, ten years later, she is in California. She feels like shit. She puts a bullet in her head or she takes some pills or something and she dies. Like, where is the karma? Where is the divine justice when somebody who is like an angel is allowed by God to go depressed and even goes and commits suicide, and somebody who is um, tens of millions of person murderer, he lives a respected life in luxury and power and everything, and he dies of a brain seizure at the age of 75, passing away in 48 hours, and probably without feeling any pain or anything like this. If you look materialistically at this, you can say both Krishna and Buddha suck, both of them, because look, this world is unfair. You know, there is no, where is the justice? Where is the karma? This karma is just some thing for poor and miserable people to feel good that there will be some justice somewhere, somehow, but actually there isn't. So people can't even believe in karma. That's why uh, when... Buddha says that if you recognize these things, at least you have fathomed the four noble truths and you walk in the right path. Without this, there is not even a path. You are not walking in any path. You are just wandering through the fog aimlessly, not like chaff in the wind. No direction, no compass, not knowing where you go. The human being, first of all, needs to have a clear understanding Uh, a mental thing and again you don't have to believe blindly you just have to say this sounds as a very reasonable statement I want to verify it I it might be right I'm open I want to have demonstrations about it then you are like a scientist that researches things we are going to continue with this magnificent discourse of Buddha where he gives basic things in our next satsang meeting for now, it is enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining in this satsang. Namaste to all of you, and see you in our next meetings. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.